In June of 2015, a 21-year-old white man walked into the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Parishioners welcomed him to their Bible study. He sat quietly for about 40 minutes. Then, as they stood for the final prayer, he pulled out a gun and murdered nine of them. They were all black. Tell me how you discovered that Dylan Roof was listening to your music. I was being interviewed by uh, a journalist um, who had showed me this printout from a website called Stormfront, which is a white supremacist website. It was an interview about how white power music radicalized people. And this was a post that Dylan Roof had made about a white power song where he had retyped the lyrics asking for who the band was because he wanted more of it. And the first time I'd read through it, it kind of struck me as familiar, and I thought, oh, this is one of the songs that I had listened to. And then I read it again, uh, and it sent shivers down my spine. The words that he had typed into that white supremacist message board just a few months before he had committed uh, that horrific act uh, were words that I had invented, words that I had put to music and words that I had released uh, in order to recruit more people into the white power movement. And the one person that I had managed to recruit uh, was Dylan Roof. You don't know if it was that song that radicalized him, though? No, I don't know. I don't know. Um, But if I had anything to do with anything in his trajectory, I blame myself for that. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Odette Youssef, and this is Motive. What to do with Christian. Christian Picciolini gave eight years to the white supremacist movement. Eight years inciting and committing violence. Eight years sowing racial hatred. Eight years targeting and brainwashing young people into the ideology. And then he wanted to be done with it. When somebody says he's finished promoting hate, what does he owe the rest of society to fix the harm that he's done? And should we entrust the fight against America's white supremacist movement to people like Christian? Christian can't pinpoint exactly when he decided to leave the movement. You have to understand, there was never that moment where I said, I'm out, I'm turning in my papers, here's my ID card. It was a gradual disappearing act for me. And it took years. Arguably, his exit started when he was at the height of his involvement. After watching thousands of drunken skinheads trash the German town of Weimar after an illegal neo-Nazi concert, Christian got on a train to return to the motel where his fiancée, Lisa, was staying. Well, uh, I, in 91, met a girl that I fell in love with. She was not a believer. She was not a sympathizer to the movement. Christian was 19, and Lisa was just 18 when they traveled to Germany. And I promised her that we would go out and sightsee and do tourist stuff and, you know, take pictures. She was very into, like, art and architecture. 
But I also wanted to like go to places like Dachau concentration camp. And I remember dragging her along and taking these very lewd pictures, you know, saluting Hitler in front of the gates. But I remember her just being so disgusted by it, but taking the pictures. Even if she was disapproving, Lisa had already made sacrifices for Christian. When they got engaged, she dropped her plans for college. In the photo she took, Christian's in his bomber jacket with his right arm raised. He has a smug look on his face. And uh, I know that I knew then that I was wrong. Uh, but I was still so interested in, like, establishing that history of taking that picture so I could show other people back home what I had done. I never spoke to Lisa. But in my reporting, I've spoken with several men who were in the movement whose white wives disapproved but looked the other way. I don't know the psychology, but I can say it's not uncommon. Christian and Lisa started a family They had two sons. And Christian says his doubts about the movement became more apparent. He felt like he was living a double life. In the house, I was this good father who didn't bring the racism home, who refused to introduce my children to it, who fought hard against the people who said, why isn't your wife at our meetings? Why isn't she involved? I wasn't willing to try and radicalize my wife. But out of the house, I was, you know, this leader. I was in bands. I was respected. Christian says that from the day he became a neo-Nazi skinhead, part of him knew that what he was doing was wrong. I interviewed Christian more than 20 hours for this podcast. I still don't really understand how someone who says he had doubts kept on being a Nazi. Do you remember, though, any, any time when you were in the moment and you were like, what the F am I doing? I don't believe this. I'm being very honest when I say I had doubts every day. In my personal time, in my head and in my heart, I reckoned with what I believe. Like I really tried. Like part of me was saying like just do it and shut the fuck up and just like go with the flow. This is great. You feel good while you're doing it. And part of me was really struggling with the idea that it wasn't fitting perfectly anywhere inside of me. Christian says it was hard to stop because preaching and acting on the hate was rewarding. It felt good, like a drug. But it was also taking a toll on him. Like, the coming down was devastating for me. I can't tell you how many times after a fight, like a big brawl or like a meeting or something like that, I would go home and spend it by myself because I'd be shaking. There haven't been large-scale studies on whether hate is addictive. But an expert on extremists told me that it's really common for formers to make this comparison. A small pilot study of former white supremacists found that their brains are different from other people's. When shown certain pictures, like a photo of a white woman and a black man who appear to be romantic partners, they reacted much more quickly and different areas of their brains lit up. Whether or not Christian was an addict, his activity in the movement was taking a toll on his marriage. It was a struggle to keep the family together because she could not 
go to sleep at night, wondering if I was going to end up in jail or dead, if my children would be hurt by people who wanted to retaliate against me. We had fights about the fact that I was involved in the movement and I would fight to stay in it, even though every part of me at the time knew that I didn't want to be a part of it anymore. Ironically, just when Christian's doubts were building, it was becoming more possible to make money as a white supremacist in the U.S. In 1994, a Canadian record label called Resistance Records incorporated in the U.S. For the first time, American bands that were part of the white supremacist movement could record, distribute, and market their music on home turf with the polish and resources they never had. They were signing bands with real contracts and giving them real advances and then putting them in real studios with real producers. It had taken this leap from a very DIY, do-it-yourself, pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of movement to now we're making a play for the mainstream. Resistance became the first million-dollar industry of the American white supremacist movement. Its success funded more white power bands, and extended the ideology's reach further than anything had to date. Resistance also eventually turned the U.S. into the world's top producer and distributor of hate music. For Christian, Resistance offered a chance to save his marriage. He became a sales rep for the label. It was kind of my very strange compromise with my wife. She said, you know, you cannot endanger the family anymore. And I said, okay, well, I'll I'll legitimize what I'm doing. I'll sell records. I'm not going to be that skinhead street warrior leader anymore. That was my move from boots to suits. I'm going to run a business, and I'm going to support the family doing it. And shortly after that, Christian opened his own record shop in south suburban Chicago. Are you sick and tired of that alternative grunge crap? Well, that's why I'm here, the supplier of the underground, Chaos Records. I think we made that commercial in like a half hour with a, you know, like a borrowed camera and a friend who knew how to edit. All the best in CDs, vinyl, clothing, airwear, jewelry, and more. We also buy and sell you CDs. The store was in a generic strip mall, along with a laundromat, Dunkin' Donuts, and a Mexican taqueria. The store's name... Chaos, with an anarchy symbol for the A, glowed in red neon from the front windows. Inside, the shelves were stocked with the Ramones, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and, in a glass case behind the cash register, the white power stuff. It wasn't out in the shelves. This decision, to make the white power music a little less accessible to people coming in, is one of the many small ways Christian rationalized what he was doing. Because I think I even knew that, like, I didn't want kids to, like, it was weird. Like, I lived this life where I was trying to recruit vulnerable people, but I also had, like, this conscience about, like, if I'm spotting them and recruiting them, it's because I know they can handle it versus, like, somebody stumbling on it on their own. How much of the white power stuff actually was selling? Most of it. That's mostly what I sold. Even though it was a small percentage of my inventory, it was probably 75% of my revenue. I remember people coming from Canada, from California, from New York, Texas. It was a destination spot for people buying the white power music. 
When Christian opened the store, he thought it would cleanly separate the turmoil at home from his work in the movement. But it didn't save his marriage. It ended up making it worse. I spent all of my time in the store. That's when I stopped spending time with my family. I used the store as an excuse to get away from dealing with the confusion that I felt at home that was causing the struggle inside of me. And Christian's doubts about the movement followed him to the store. Soon, he removed the white power music from that glass case. I thought at that point, I can do away with the racist part and just make it a record store and be successful. And of course I couldn't. When I removed the racist music from the shelves, sales tanked. It was so much of my revenue um, that I just, I couldn't financially keep the store open. By the time it closed, I was so in debt um, that it was kind of a worthless business venture anyway. By the time Christian was 22, he had lost nearly everything. The business had failed. He was in debt. Lisa had left him. He had pulled back from the Hammerskins and his associates had noticed. And Christian finally saw what it would look like for someone to go through with what he and the movement preached. Nine o'clock this morning, if you were in the metro area, you heard it and you felt it, a massive explosion ripped through the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. We want to recap for you what has happened in downtown Oklahoma City, a tragedy of this magnitude. On April 19, 1995, two white terrorists detonated a bomb at a federal building in Oklahoma City. They killed 168 people. 19 were children attending a daycare on the second floor. It was the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in modern American history. Are there people missing from your office? Yeah, 26. You don't know what's happened? I can look at that building and imagine what's happened to them. It hurts deep down as to why someone would do something of this this magnitude. You know, to me, you know, instantly had all the hallmarks. It was a government institution. It was a bomb. It was coordinated. Even today, accounts of the Oklahoma City bombing tend to characterize the perpetrators as simply anti-government extremists. But from the day it happened, Christian knew it was more than that. I knew deep down inside, I knew that it had come from somebody in the movement. The MO was spot on. The media never really did, and still hasn't, you know, in large part, connected Timothy McVeigh and his association with Aryan Nations and his association with books like the Turner Diaries have not publicized that as necessarily a white supremacist terror attack. That book, The Turner Diaries, was part of the canon for white supremacists at the time, An excerpt from it was found in Timothy McVeigh's car. It's a dystopian and unapologetically racist novel in which white separatists violently overthrow the U.S. government. Christian read it during his education as a neo-Nazi. But now, Christian was older. And he had two young children. I remember feeling sick about it. I mean, seeing the pictures of the young children being carried out and and, uh, the numbers of people who were hurt and who died. To this day, elements of the white supremacist movement call Timothy McVeigh a saint. I felt guilty that I had 
contributed to something like that, that I had put music out or that I had recruited people or that I had put ideas into people's heads that may have contributed to something like that. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that and it's Chicago based. So you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Christian Picciolini says he left the white supremacist movement in 1996. Today, he's found a way to gain from his hate-filled past. Joining me now, Christian, uh, Christian Picciolino, uh, excuse me, Picciolini, a former uh, skinhead and author of Romantic Christian's one of the people that America turns to when we need help interpreting what white extremists do. He's a former someone who's left an extremist movement. And he's now a public figure. Well, Christian Picciolini, welcome to Fresh Air. I talked to Christian Picciolini yesterday, and he told me how... Why are people drawn to these groups? Christian Picciolini joined the Chicago-area skinheads as a teenager. Christian's given countless interviews. He had a television show. He's written two books about his experiences. My journey away from violent extremism began 22 years ago. A TED Talk he gave garnered more than four million views. When I denounced racism and left the American white supremacist skinhead movement that I'd helped build. And, of course, he's collaborating with us on this podcast. There's something incredibly American about Christian's journey from notorious hate monger to media darling. It's the kind of redemption story we all crave to hear and to reward. But it's also strange. When you say you're not a bad guy anymore, is that enough? What do you need to do to make up for the harm you've done? So you've spent years of your life dehumanizing Black people and Jewish people and preaching unimaginable violence against them. Yeah. Why should anyone give you the time of day? I don't think anybody should believe me easily. I think that anybody who says that they spent their life hating and dehumanizing people uh, and then have changed, uh, those people require a lot of scrutiny uh, because I know that I can't ever escape what I did, that I can't take away the pain that I caused other people. It doesn't evaporate. And saying I'm sorry doesn't make it any better. Uh, I put something into the world um, that I can't walk away from. Now it's my job to clean it up. You told us that you loved the attention that you got on stage in Weimar mm. and yeah. when you were a leader in the movement. Isn't what you do now just a different version of you seeking that spotlight? Uh, I don't No, I think going into the skinhead movement, I wasn't seeking the spotlight. I was certainly seeking attention. Uh, I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be respected. I don't know that I wanted to be a celebrity. And now, I, you know, if I'm being completely transparent, I still want to be loved. I still want to be respected. But now I understand that I have to earn 
that love and that respect through my actions. Uh, and not, it's not just going to be granted to me. Um, you know, people say, well, you're just profiting off of your old stories and this and that. But yeah, this has never been about money for me. I've had to take other jobs unrelated to this to actually give me a little bit of money to survive. It's never been about fame. In the U.S., there's a whole cottage industry of formers now. People who get paid to speak publicly about their time as extremists. People who profit from their pasts as hate mongers. A sort of redemption market. It feels ethically messed up. If their goal really is to stamp out extremism, you'd think they'd be working together. But instead, Christian and some other formers he was working with are fighting a bitter lawsuit over trademarks and domain names. When you put that up against the threat of far-right extremism in the U.S., their dispute makes you question their motives for doing this work. All this has made me doubt many times whether it's the right thing to extend another platform to Christian on this podcast. In the end, I decided to do it. His insider's view has helped me understand how the white supremacist movement operated 30 years ago and today. Also, I have to remember that for many years after Christian left the movement, he lived a quiet life as a computer tech. But when he came out publicly about his past, he put a big target on his back. I don't think there's much concern that he's secretly still a Nazi. I think it's just, I don't know, I think people struggle with what kind of good guy he is. I mean, I think it's hard. We love a redemption story, but (laughs) Nazis. Nora Flanagan wrestled with Christian's transformation when he resurfaced in her life about a decade ago. In the early 90s, Nora was a teenager in Chicago watching Christian build his crew of neo-Nazi skinheads. What do you think Christian did? He planted a lot of seeds, and then they also planted seeds. Nora joined the other side as a sharp, a skinhead against racial prejudice. Is there a clearer side to pick than Nazis or the people who punch them? Like, this seemed so obvious to me. Back in the day, Nora and the other Sharps fought the Nazis with physical violence. Some of the fights were righteous, as in there's a guy who has come into the bar where we're hanging out and he's got the Hammerskin logo tattooed on his neck and he's sitting by himself at a table waiting for someone to fuck with him. I have absolutely been party to the group of people who physically remove someone like that from our space. We're fighting the good fight. We are the freedom fighters in this narrative, even though we were totally not doing anything to actually help racial justice in Chicago. We meant well. Um, We had good ideology. Um, But man, we were dicks. Teenage Nora never met Christian Picciolini, but he was the boogeyman under the bed, the reason she carried a bat in the trunk of her car. Years later, after Christian had left the movement, he emailed Nora out of the blue. He was trying to write a memoir. I need somebody with a critical eye from that period, somebody who will hold me to account. I did not want to meet with him initially when he asked me to sit down and talk about 
his book he was working on and, you know, can we collaborate? Nope. How was the meeting? Tense. Nora ultimately agreed to meet with Christian because she felt that if he really was a former, maybe he could be useful. I don't know. I think I thought there was potential for something bigger and more important than punching people. I had kind of come to this realization that there's more than one way to punch a Nazi. And maybe the best way to fight white nationalism is to collaborate with other people and do things that are more productive. Nora read a draft Christian had written of his book. It convinced her that he was making a genuine effort to atone for what he had done as an extremist. She agreed to help him. Christian self-published only a couple dozen copies at first for his family. And every once in a while, I would email him a nudge because we were friendly by then. I'd be like, hey, man, I think, I think we need your book. I think you need to think about releasing this. And then finally, he was ready. When Christian finally published the book for wider release, it was the first time he came out to the public about his past. Four weeks later, on a night when Christian was giving a talk about his book at a small Chicago bookstore, Dylan Roof murdered nine people in a black church in Charleston, South Carolina. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to hear from him, and it hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped since the shooting in Charleston. I know that it keeps him up at night to think, you know, is there some chain of connection from me to Dylan Roof over the years? You know, did my music travel that far? That's why Christian travels constantly, speaks everywhere that will have him, and just keeps working at this and working at this is because he feels like he's never going to be done. And as someone who was on the other side of it, he never should feel done. I mean, how do you make up for fostering the neo-Nazi skinhead movement in the Midwest? How do you fix that? One of the ways that Christian's trying to fix it is by working one-on-one to help others disengage from the movement. So this is the letter from uh, Dylan Roof dated April 13th, 2017. And one of the people he's tried that with is Dylan Roof. Christian sent Roof his book, and Roof read it and wrote back. And it starts out, Traitor, you've really cashed in, haven't you? I know you won't be, but you really should be ashamed of yourself. You couldn't handle the mental stress that comes along with white nationalism, so you took the easy way out. But what is so disgusting about you is that rather than just leave... The letter is postmarked just three days after Dylan Roof became the first person in the U.S. sentenced to death for a federal hate crime. Someone counseling Roof had asked Christian to reach out to him. But Christian also wrote to Roof for personal reasons. I had to try. Because, like the rest of the world, I wanted to understand why. Despite having called for another Holocaust, and despite preaching violence against Black people, Christian says he was never like Dylan Roof. In his mind, there was always a difference between talking about killing and actually doing it. You know, I I had talked about bringing down the government, and I had been active in, you know, street violence and things like that. But the idea of taking a gun and murdering people because of the color of their skin, while it was like part of my literature and songs and things like that, I never 
wanted that. So I wanted to understand what would put somebody in, in that headspace with the small hope that maybe if I could talk about my story and what I had gone through, that he could realize that maybe what he had done was wrong too. Um, and uh, I didn't get that. <laughs> I got the opposite. I got him doubling down and, and amplifying it. And honestly, every time I read that, uh, it makes me sick to my stomach. Christian claims he's helped hundreds of white extremists disengage from the movement. It's a claim that's impossible to verify. I I will tell you this. I mean, some of the things that have been publicly stated by Christian about his work in this space are just simply factually not possible. Pete Simi is a sociologist who studies formers. He spent a lot of time studying neo-Nazi skinheads and even lived with one for his research. He knows Christian. I don't think he has the documentation to support some of these claims. So, I, you know, I, I am pretty nervous about some of what I've heard from, from Christian, to be honest with you, as far as the amount of time he's been doing this kind of work and uh, as far as the number of cases and the success rate of his cases. Christian's a one-man operation with no one keeping an eye on him. I asked Simi what he thinks the role of formers should be in correcting the harm they've done. He says there's no rule, but it's important to distinguish between formers who choose to disengage quietly and formers like Christian who become public figures. If we're talking about this more public-facing former who wants to do formal intervention, they need to get training. Right now there's no certification for this specific kind of work, but getting some formalized programmatic training is, I think, essential because there's so much damage that can be done, inadvertently even, unintentionally. You're not a licensed therapist. You're not a social worker. You're not a psychologist. What Mm -hmm. makes you anything more than an amateur with a troubled past? Nothing uh, except experience, and that's all accurate. But people who are extremists trust me because I was in their shoes at one time. You know, they're very paranoid in general. They don't trust the government. They don't trust professionals. They don't trust the establishment. But they seem to trust me because I was there at one point. And what I do is I listen to them and then I stay on as a guide but surround them with professionals who know how to do the work, who are licensed therapists, who are psychologists. And I never pretend to to think that I know, uh, you know, what it takes to be a, a professional therapist or anything like that. I asked Christian, what happens when he fails, when he works with someone, but that person doesn't find stability away from the movement? He couldn't offer much of an answer in an interview, but when he got home, he emailed me. Here's what he wrote. I feel like I was honest about being frustrated with the work and about the challenges, but I didn't fully let you in to how scared it makes me feel to actually do it, knowing it's one false step and someone gets hurt. Christian wrote that a couple years ago, someone he worked with died by suicide. It's something he seems to have blocked out of his memory. The reason that formers in the U.S. operate like Christian, without oversight, like the Wild West, is because of a vacuum. Other countries have built effective ways to fight extremism. Germany and Sweden have had so-called exit programs for decades. Their governments enlist formers to help others disengage from hate movements. 
They've built best practices to give job training, therapy, and rehabilitation to help reentry into normal society. The programs are funded, and they track and report the results. The U.S. is so far from acknowledging white supremacy in our institutions and history that a model like that seems impossible here. When I think of the horrors of Oklahoma City and Charleston, it feels like this work is too important to entrust to a guy improvising on his own. And this approach also creates another problem. The work itself can be overwhelming. Pete Simi says, for some formers, constantly telling and retelling the worst things they've ever done can re-traumatize them. I absolutely 100% have PTSD from not only my, you know, time in the movement, but because I committed violence against other people. I think most people don't realize that, yes, I victimized them and they have trauma because of me. But the act of doing that when I was kind of living two lives and not, you know, like fully believing what I was doing, but committed to doing it is traumatizing. (laughs) For someone who reckons daily with questions like, did I help to radicalize Dylan Roof? The trauma can keep building. You know, the fact that my song, you know, somehow got into Dylan Roof's hands before. I don't know if he said, oh, that song, it's going to make me go kill people. But I fucking contributed to it in some way. And had I not written that song, maybe he wouldn't have had that switch flipped. I don't know. And I think of how many other kids are out there. That could drive you crazy. (laughs) Or it can just give you panic attacks when you least expect them, or it can cause you to gain weight, or it can cause you to be depressed, or all kinds of secondary trauma that I deal with on a regular basis. The way we're doing it right now doesn't seem to be working for anyone. At the age of 14, Christian poured gas on a fire And he's still trying to put it out. Like, I am still fixing the damage that I caused. I'm not even in the territory of, like, making more progress. Like, I am still trying to fill in those, like, endless voids of the damage that I caused. The blaze has grown beyond control. And now it's fueled by a new breed of young white supremacists. It came to a point at which I just embraced the, um, you know, label of racist, really. Next time on Motive, the new generation. We were convinced that if your average Trump supporter, if they had an opportunity to hear us out, then we would have a real opportunity to convert them to our cause. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find these things. It helps other people find the show. I'm Odette Youssef. The producer is Colin McNulty. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Story consultant, Christian Picciolini. Our intern is Hannah Boomershine. Joe Dassault mixed the show. Original music by Stephen Jackson and Jesse Dukes. Special thanks to listeners whose financial support of WBEZ 
made this podcast possible.